0: Matthew chapter 12, as we look at this passage of scripture, I'm going to take you to the very end of the passage in one sense, it's verse 38. I'm going to read this to us, and at first glance, you're kind of wondering, why is Jesus acting this way? Because it seems like they're asking, these people are asking a legitimate question, and Jesus responds kind of in a harsh way. And uh, so let's look at this together, Matthew chapter 12 and verse 38. It says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you, or show us a sign. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. May God add his blessing to the reading of the scriptures. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you so much again for your kindness to us. We we'll want to thank you for your mercy. Lord, when we deserve your judgment, you show mercy. Lord, anyone who would forsake your mercy would in the end receive your wrath. And yet, God, you tell us in your word that you're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Lord, we know your heartbeat. We know that your kindness in providing salvation. But God, I pray that there would be nobody in this room who would reject your saving grace, your loving mercy, but they would humble their hearts before you. Lord, I realize that not everyone who comes to a church on a Sunday morning is truly in Christ, is genuinely born again. And you even tell us in your word that many will say in that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy? Didn't we even do good works in your name? And you will say to them, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness, you who work iniquity, you who live in their sin. I don't know you. And so, God, I pray that that would not be the case in this room here today, that those who hear the word of God would respond by faith to you and trust in you and you alone. I think of those who may hear this when it comes to um, social media. That, God, you would use this message. Lord, there may be some who are somewhat shut in and they can't get out. Or maybe some who would later go back and hear this message. I ask that you would use this in a very special way in their heart and their life. But, God, there are many who come here today who are in Christ. And so, God, I pray, would you stir us as believers, those who have been born again, would you work in our hearts to make us more like Christ? That we would leave here different than when we came in. And so, God, would you please bless your word today, and would you, would you please work in and through me by your grace, and fill me with your spirit, use our time together uh, for our good and your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. When I say the date, April 15th, what comes to your mind? Tax, man. You guys are a bunch of downers. Um, Actually, a little over a hundred years ago, on that date, um, something happened in in history that would forever shock the the world. You could say uh, it was the sinking of the Titanic. That was April of 1912. It was actually on late evening hours on the 14th, where this great passenger cruise liner, the the Titanic, was um, making its way, and as it was. Going interesting it was late in the evening where it hit an iceberg almost right at 11 40 p.m and it took two hours and 40 minutes later where the ship finally sank it was a shock to all the cultures it killed right around 1500 people and it, it happened on early morning hours of April 15th a little again over 100 years ago Now, I don't know if you've done a lot of study about the Titanic, and I say that because there's an element where, I mean, there's so many, there are movies on the Titanic, there are documentaries, there's even conspiracy theories, there's all kinds of things you want to find, you can find on the Titanic, in a sense, but about the Titanic. But the Titanic was a massive ship in its day. It was was almost 900 feet long. 882 and a half feet long. I mean, you think of a football field and you exclude the end zones, it was almost like three football fields and we're talking a significant uh, distance. Um, Also right in the midst of it, the the width of it was right around a hundred feet. It was 92 and a half feet wide. Um, From the base to the top of the stacks, it went up 175 feet in the air. So that's a floating city. It actually carried uh, 2,224 people on its maiden voyage. It weighed 52,000 tons, probably more than your boat, okay, that you own. (laughs) When I think about the size, this is a massive size, but the beauty of it was also astounding. I mean, the beauty of it, in that day, it was a big deal. It had a swimming pool on board, I noticed that no one really reacted, <laughs> you know, because we think of our modern day cruise ships and there's, man, there's lazy rivers, there's wave pools, you can surf, you know, on those ships, you know, you can go to a driving range, zip lines, all kinds of stuff on our modern day cruise ships, but in that day, it had a swimming pool, which was a big deal, it had a dining saloon, it had four elevators, I mean, that's pretty crazy in 1912 on a ship, and um, you could get a parlor suite, Maybe, maybe you want to you splurge a little bit And get one of the parlor suites It would cost you $4,350 for a parlor suite But that was back in 1912 If you look at it in our modern day You could get a parlor suite It would cost you over $120,000 for a parlor suite Now some of you are like, whoa you know, <laughs> Maybe you're thinking chump change I'm thinking, not me, that's crazy, that's a lot of money And you think about that in that day And yet some even said this, this ship is so big that God himself couldn't even sink a ship like that. Yeah, you better be careful what you say, but I will also say this, as you begin to study that historically, who said that? And you come up short, it's kind of a hard kind of... But that was the mentality of the culture. I mean, such a massive ship, how could it ever go down? God himself couldn't even sink a ship like that. So that was clearly the thought processes of that world. But I would tell you this this morning, that that ship did not have to go down that day. It had received at least six warnings... The final warning came, and the operator replied back and said this, Shut up, shut up, I'm working. You could say just as the Titanic had warnings, so we too, as people, have warnings from God. They're clear warnings of judgment to come. And there's a reminder to us, even within this text, of the warnings of God. And I would tell you, this is mercy that God would give us warnings, isn't it? And that, that actually shows love that you would be warned. And I, I would say this because I think about maybe a neighbor's house who catches fire. We were actually in a church um, in the fall, and, we, and a family got word while that service had just began that their house had just caught fire. They went back to basically gather nothing. It actually was fully engulfed, and, and they lost everything. That was an awful tragedy, you could say. But in the process of of something like that, you can imagine if your neighbor's house has caught fire and you notice it, but then you look at your neighbors and they're moving very slow. You can see them kind of in the windows. Clearly, they don't know. And you run over there and start banging on their door and, and, and you bang on the door and they open up the door and you say, get out, get out, your house is on fire, okay? Now, they might look at you at first and say, why are you yelling at me? What's your problem? No, 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 no. Your house is on fire. Get out. And if they get out in time and let's say the thing does get engulfed in flames, the truth is they would be hugging you with tears in their eyes saying thank you you saved my life it would show mercy I don't think you would look at it and go man moving real slow in there sure hope they get out No, you and mercy would be banging on the door and warning them, and yet here's the God of mercy who warns us in this passage. He's clearly warning the the religious crowd, but but yet he's warning us who read this passage, and I would ask this question, will you heed the warning? Will you hear this from God, and will you respond to this? In many ways, if you were to ask me, Jeremy, what do you entitle the message? I would entitle this message, the God of mercy or maybe a subtitle, heed the warning. As we look at this closer, I want us to see this in verse 38. Notice it says this, Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Actually, that's not a bad question, is it? I mean, that's not a bad statement. Hey, Jesus, can you, could you show us a sign? I mean, if you're really who you say you are, I mean, I don't want to have blind faith, do you? I mean, like, I don't even, it doesn't even make any sense or anything. Well, sure, I guess I'll go follow this guy who says he's Messiah. I mean, really? I mean, at least, I mean, I, I want to know something. And I love that about Christianity because genuine biblical Christianity is not blind faith. But you begin to look at this. Interesting, though, it does take faith, but show us a sign. Now, at first glance, this is a legitimate question, but it's at first glance. If you really back up and see the context, you realize this is actually a sinful request. I want to back you up so you can see this. Okay, then that would be point number one. This is actually a confrontation that begins with a sinful request. Go back to chapter 11 and let's look about, about really what, what is, what's going on here. What's, what's really happening? Jesus is a miracle worker. He is doing so many miracles. Actually, by the time he's said and done too, the book of John speaks of all the things that he did, said and did. And it was so prolific that even the books of the world at the time could not contain all that he did. That's how much Jesus did. He literally would come into regions and wipe out diseases and demons and and, and rescue people consistently. That's who Jesus is as a miracle worker. But look at chapter 11 and notice verse 2. It says, When John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said, said to him, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Well, that's interesting. You know who this is? Is John the Baptist. Which is interesting, because John the Baptist is also the same one who who is Jesus' Jesus's cousin, remember that? And then he baptized Jesus. He's the one who heard the voice from heaven. He saw this seemed like a dove, dove-like figure come and reside in and upon Christ. I mean, you know, and this is my beloved son, you know, and all this. I mean, but he, and he baptizes him, you know. Th- so what's interesting, this is weird that he is saying this. Now maybe this is for his disciples' sake, you know, that they would follow Christ, that they would see that he is who he says he is, or... Maybe he's somewhat struggling personally. I don't know about you. The Jewish mindset would be that Messiah would come and set up his kingdom and rule and reign. And now what you have is he's in prison who will later get beheaded. But it doesn't seem to be maybe working out the, maybe his way that he's thinking. It could be that as well. But you look at it closely. I mean, verse 3 again, are you the coming one or do we look for another? Verse 4, Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see, the blind see and the lame walk and the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Go tell John. You go further in the passage and you start realizing how Jesus is doing all these miracles. Look Look at verse 20 of the same passage. Then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his, here it is, his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. That was the problem. No repentance. Go further. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. If the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. That's a major scathing rebuke, isn't it? A curse upon them. Verse 23. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven... Will be brought down to Hades, the idea of to hell, to judgment. For if the mighty works which have been done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. What's the problem here? They're seeing amazing miracles. And yet he's, he's preaching a simple message to repent and to believe the gospel. And they're not responding to the message. Clearly, this is Messiah. And they're going, wow, that's pretty cool. Look, at this, look what he does. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not repenting. You go further in the passage, or you go to chapter 12, and we start to see it here. Chapter 12, and look at verse 9. Now when he had departed from from there, he went into their synagogue, and behold, there was a man who had a withered hand, and they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Why did they ask him that? Look at the next phrase. That they might accuse him. The whole point of the question was to trick Jesus. And I would say to them, good luck. (laughs) Like, how do you trick the one who made the brain? How do you trick the one who created the universe? But they're going to try. So they want to accuse him. Verse 11 then he said to them, "Well, what man is there among you who has one sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? I mean, won't you do that? And they all would have in their mindset would have went, well, yeah, that's what we do. How much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and it was restored as whole as the other. Now, that is amazing again this is in front of all these people this is a this is a synagogue this would be like you know in our modern day kind of like an assembly like this you know and yet within the assembly um a, a jewish place of worship and assembly um you know they're trying to trick him i mean is it lawful to heal on the sabbath you know of course it is i mean you rescue your sheep don't you and then, hey, you, come here. And he brings him up. You can imagine, here's a guy who comes up with a withered hand. Now, again, what did that, what did that look like? Well, he's got this shortened little arm, and, and, um, and maybe a birth defect. Maybe it happened during birth. We don't know. could happen, maybe a tragic accident at some point in his life early on, maybe. But it seems to be this is his lifelong, you know, struggle. He's got this small little hand and a regular arm. And then Jesus, with him in front, it's like, could you imagine... You know, is it lawful? Of course it's lawful. Stretch forth your hand. And you're watching this. You know, at that point in time, you're not falling asleep in the service anymore. You know what I mean? It's like, you're clearly awake. Like, what in the world's going to happen? All of a sudden, you watch these fingers start to stretch out. And it's and now all of a sudden it starts to move and the arms lengthening out. And what do you think the guy's face looked like? I mean, have you thought? You know, like he's and then he's probably starting to cheer himself like whoa! Like this is amazing, (laughs) and he's he's so happy. Everyone's astounded. Everyone's going whoa! That is amazing. Everyone's so excited, huh? Well, not everyone. Look further because you see the reaction. Of this, which to me is a shocker. In verse fourteen, when the Pharisees, then the Pharisees, they went out and plotted against him. They gathered together, and they—I mean, they—they conspired. They're, They're throwing out ideas on what, on how they might destroy him. How can we kill him? But verse 15, but when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there and great multitudes followed him. And what did he do? And he healed them all. That is, he's just doing miracles. And then verse 22, then one was brought to him that was de- who was demon-possessed. He was blind and mute and he healed him so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw and the all the multitudes were amazed and said, could this be the son of David? I mean, that, that is a reference to Messiah. Could this be the very Messiah? And, and notice this, verse 24. Now, when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. But Jesus, he knew their thoughts and said to them, well, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. And every city and house divided against itself will not stand. I mean, if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. I mean, how then will his kingdom stand? I mean, that makes no sense what you're saying. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. This is, this is a shocker. Again, he's doing so many miracles. So then when you hit verse 38, we realize how, how sinful this request is. And I would call it not just sinful, I call it stupid. This is one of the stupidest requests where they're coming to Jesus at this point in time in verse 38. And some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered saying, teacher, good teacher. Hey, master, show us a sign. Are you, are you catching this? This is so sarcastic. They don't care about a sign. And then you think about this. I mean, it's almost like if you're really Messiah, give us proof. But wait a second. He heals the sick he makes the blind see, he walks on water, he calms storms with his voice, he casts out demons, he feeds 5,000 with five loaves and two fish, and if you include the women and children, that's fifteen to 20,000 with five loaves and two fish. He raises the dead on multiple occasions, and you want proof? You don't need proof. You need a humble heart of repentance and faith in Christ. I mean, the truth is you start to look at this, and I think that is our mentality so often. Show us proof. Give us a sign. I mean, if you're really who you say you are, and again, I don't know if you realize this, but what you have in front of you as the scripture, can I remind you, is the greatest proof. It's what you need more than anything else. And you say, why do you say that, Jeremy? Because when you study out Luke 16, the rich man and Lazarus, remember that story? And Jesus is describing this, and the rich man so wealthy, he could buy whatever he wants to buy in a sense. He has banquet style of meals. He wore really nice, wore really nice clothes. He, he, really nice, he wore really nice clothes. And, um, and the poor man, Lazarus, was, was a beggar. Destitute beggar. They seemed to have to carry him, to place him to a spot where, the, where really the garbage, you could say, would be thrown out, that he could get the crumbs from the rich man's table, that's where he was, and literally his body covered in sores, scavenger dogs would come and lick his, that's, that's, the, that's the word pictures Jesus is using, and then he tells you how they die, he does not tell you how, specifically he just tells you that they do die, and the poor man enters into the presence of God, he's beside, he's beside Abraham's bosom, right beside his side, of, 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 which is shocker, because in their culture, they would go, what, I mean, the rich guy is blessed by God and the poor guy is cursed by God. How in the world did the cursed guy get there? Cuz it has nothing to do with your money. And then it says that the rich man, Luke 16:23, dies. And in hell, he lifts up his eyes and he's in torments. And what does he ask for? Yeah, please send Lazarus just to dip the tip of his finger in some water and touch my tongue because I'm in torments with the flame. I mean, that's crazy that he didn't say, Get me out of here, because he knows he can't get out. And he doesn't say, Come on, please give me a drink of water, give me some kind of relief. You no, know, just a tip of his finger, just to touch my tongue, just to give me a little bit of relief, please. No, it doesn't work that way. Where you go when you die, you will go there for all eternity, as it's being described in a sense by, by God to him. You could say it's, it's so the truth is it's going, wait a second, you can't go from one to the other. So then what does he say? The next request. Then please send, send Lazarus back from the dead to go let him tell my brothers, they could warn them not to go to this place. And what's the response? No, actually, he has Moses and the prophets. He has the Old Testament. If he doesn't listen to the Old Testament, and the truth there, there's no hope for him listening even if someone comes back from the dead. See, I think we... We get too caught up within our culture and we think, you know, it's almost like, it's almost like, you know, Christmas Carol, you know, if just three times, you know, and Christmas Eve and then pretty soon, you know, you, you kind of wake up, you see these ghosts and the ghosts of Christmas past and the future and all you know, like, whoa, wait, 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 really? Jesus is telling you, the scripture is teaching you. There is way more power in the scriptures than someone coming back from the dead. And actually, that is true because in scripture, what does it teach us? Well, Jesus raised the literal Lazarus from the dead, and what did they do? They wanted him dead again. Jesus raises from the dead, and they wanted him dead again. The whole point is you don't, again, need proof. It's already there. Here's Jesus, and we've got the greatest revelation in front of us. If you don't respond to that, there is no hope. That's where the power comes from, through the word. So you look at this and realize this is a, a confrontation. And Jesus, he starts this, this confrontation starts with a sinful request or stupid request. But Jesus follows it up with this point number two, with a scathing rebuke. And really, this is the point number two and really the last point, which is kind of weird. You know, only two points for a message, but here we go. Ready? Verse 39. But he answered and he said to them An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign and there and no sign will be given to it well except for one I'll give you one more sign Here's what it is It's a sign of the prophet Jonah What Then he tells you for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. Now wait a second. You're not going to get a sign except for the sign of the prophet Jonah Now some of you are, are understanding the method to my madness Because if you were here in the, more, the earlier hour uh, We actually went through the book of Jonah It was kind of really a neat study as we kind of go through that And we did it quickly But many of you know the story of Jonah, don't you? I mean, everyone seems to know that story. It's one of the most popular Bible stories in the Scripture, I guess, in our, even in, within our modern day. Even if you're somewhat, you know, biblically illiterate, you probably do remember Jonah. I mean, Jonah's the guy, the prophet, where God told him to go and to preach to Nineveh, this great city. The message that I give you, just go do that. Instead of doing that, he's supposed to go 500 miles, and he's supposed to, you know, um, go north, you know, east, and instead he goes southwest. And I don't mean the airline, you know, and he, he gets on a boat and he pays the fare. And when he pays the fare, it seemingly when he's paying the fare is probably when he told them, what are you doing? I'm running from God, you know, and he gives them the money. And could you imagine if you were the guy like collecting the fare and stuff too? And the people, you know, I'm running from God and you're a pagan. I'm like, I don't care. Get on, give me your money. Get on the boat next. You know, click next, you know, I mean, but here's this prophet. And then he goes in and then he falls asleep in the base of the boat, and God had sent a raging storm. I mean, a massive storm. Now can, can you think of any other prophet who fell asleep in a boat during a raging storm? Jesus. Interesting, two difference about these prophets. There's two different things. One is a prophet who is so consumed with doing God's will he's exhausted in the process, so exhausted. He can fall asleep during a raging storm. Here's another prophet who is running from God's will and he's so exhausted that he falls asleep during that and yet they come in and they begin to wake him up I mean again they're, they're initially tossing things overboard to try to you know, lighten the load and, and, and again that is their livelihood I mean this is the whole point I mean if you're throwing that over it means you really do think you're going to die because why would you ever throw that over that's the way you make money that's, there's no, no point in that so they think they're going to die they're throwing stuff over and then they, they, they find this guy sleeping what are you doing sleeping we're all out here crying out to our gods I mean it was like an ecumenical prayer meeting I mean no, it's going nowhere but they're We're all yelling out to God we don't know who he is we're all crying out to our gods you know you know you cry out to your God and then and then they they say this is a reason this is happening this is not a normal storm they actually cast lots it's like they're drawing straws who is the problem on this boat and the lot falls on Jonah and they go down and they're like what are you doing? What, I mean, who are you? Where are you from? And, uh, they're bombarding him. They're yelling at him, you know. And he's, I've already told you. I'm a prophet I'm, and I'm running from God. And so, if you want your woes to stop, then pick me up, throw me overboard, and your woes will stop. As I said earlier, I'm like, that's so that's weird. Like, Why do we have to pick you up and throw you overboard? If you're the problem, go jump. (laughs) But the prophet wouldn't take his life into his own hands. He knew that was of God. So you throw me overboard. They tried everything else. I mean, they, 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 they're, and then they finally pray. It's like, God, we don't even know who you are, but, but we, we don't want to have innocent blood on our hands, but, but here we go. If, please don't let us do this if it's not the case, but here we go. Ready? And they throw him overboard. He hits the water and goes down, down, down. I mean, it's like he's, and he's going down fast, but when he hits the water, what happens to this raging storm? Boom, it stops. Like everything just stops. Like, that is a shocker. I mean, they're all so shocked, and you can imagine. Maybe the boat took a a little bit of time because it was going so crazy, but now it's because the water's perfectly calm, you know, and the storm's gone. What in the world? Clearly, this was a prophet of God, and what do they do? They begin to pay vows to God and make sacrifices to the one true God. Now, I would ask you this question. How much revelation did they have? I mean, so little of just that short time, with, and they turned to the one true God. We would call that a a great awakening happened on the ship that day, and no one was expecting that. And then what's crazy is that God sends a a big fish. Often we call it a whale. Sometimes even the translation might even call it a whale, but it just simply means a big fish. Swallows him. Now you go, wait a second. I mean, (laughs) Jeremy, do you really believe song got swallowed by a fish and spit out. I mean, come on. I say, <laughs> yeah, I do. <laughs> I do because Jesus taught it is true. I do because actually, just like, what, three years ago, it was like a major headline. Some guy gets swallowed and spit out right away. That's kind of crazy to think that that, that could happen. Now, now do, flatter me for a moment, moment. Here we go. Ready? I know it's getting closer to lunch, so we've got to be careful. But can you swallow at will? Can you do it? Can you just swallow once? That's Jonah going down. Imagine that. Because when you eat food and you swallow, I mean, everything's surrounding, forcing that down. Jonah thinking he's thinking he's going to die. He's overwhelmed by something that's coming over him, and again, he's in the water. It's like I'm sure it's already dark, but now it's really dark. And then all of a sudden he's being squished and smushed into this, and then he's working to the stomach region of this great fish. And how big was it? Was it big enough where he could sit up, you know, and, and hang out a little bit? Or was it, was it like he's, he's just in there? Was it just big enough as a compartment to, in a sense, keep him alive? Actually, some theologians and some, some Bible teachers would, would suggest that maybe he really did die and God raised him from the dead within the belly of the fish at some point. Either way, the whole point is we know he's got this prayer and he's in the fish's belly and he begins to cry out and says, God, you know, you're right. I will pay my vows. His last words were this before the the fish spits him out was was this, salvation is of the Lord. And God says to the fish, he's ready, spit him out. And the scripture says that he was spit out Onto dry land, we would call that projectile vomiting. <laughs> Please don't try that. <laughs> but was he near a cliff area where it's all of a sudden, Bleh, and then he lands on dry land? Was it close enough where he's in the shoreline where he can Bleh, and shoot him out, and then he lands? I bet he's. He's projected, he lands on dry land and now God tells him the second time, this is already Jonah chapter 3, go to this great city and preach to it the message that I tell you. And he says, yes sir, like like he's not going to let that happen again, I mean, could you imagine, I wonder for the rest of his life if he ever went anywhere close to a body of water again, you know, maybe he struggled taking showers or a bath, you know. But the truth is, is, here he is, and then you can imagine what he looked like, what he smelled like. How would you get that stench out of your clothes? Even if you put on new clothes, you still have that stench. You get the bleachness of the stomach acid, and your face would be bleached. Your skin's all bleached. Do you have any hair left? Is it all bleached? I mean, what does it look like? This prophet, and now he goes, and he goes to Nineveh, and he preaches. The message was like six to eight words in the Hebrew. It's so short. And he basically says, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, it's interesting. The people of Nineveh, if you do any study about them, they were so vile. They were the conquering nation of the day. But they were so vile when they would come in and conquer. They would not just come in and take over a city. But they, would, they were known, scripture tells us in, in that book of Jonah, they were known for their violence. They would come in and they would sever the heads. At times they would impale people, lighting their bodies in the city streets on, on fire to, to light up. They would, they would actually come in with large knives and they would hack open pregnant women, ripping them open, killing the baby, killing the woman. They would kill the people. Then they would, they would fillet their bodies, take the skins of their bodies, and hang them over the city walls to say this, you mess with us, this is what we'll do to you. And Jonah preaches this short message. The scripture says this that the people believed God. They start to humble themselves. Judgment is coming, they begin to cry out to God. They begin to show works of repentance, of turning to the one true God. They put on sackcloth, cover themselves over with sackcloth and ashes. They sit in ashes. They, they, the king himself, now this is a conquering, slaughtering king, who's so arrogant and so proud. Again, these people are not just known for their violence. They're immoral. They're vile. They're just so consumed with self. Anyone who deserves judgment, clearly it's those people. And the king even sits in sackcloth. Put sackcloth on, and sits in ashes. They proclaim a fast. No one's going to eat. No animals will even eat. You can imagine no one's eating. What are the animals doing? They're crying out everywhere. Even the animals are hungry. And God sees this. And God, in his mercy, he rescues them. I would probably call this the greatest revival of all time. And these are pagans. Now, whenever you come across a person who says something stupid like, don't you know that the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament? Because the God of the Old Testament was this, like, angry God of fire and just, just killed people. And the God of the New Testament is a God of love and a God of mercy. I just ask, do you read the Bible? Do you know of the story of Jonah? Have you ever heard of Rahab? The truth is anyone who would humble their hearts before the Lord could receive the blessing of salvation. But if you reject the saving love of God, you in the end will receive his, his judgment. If you sin against an eternal God, there's an eternal punishment. That's why you need God's eternal sacrifice. Well, you're looking at this and you're seeing, going, this is pretty radical because Jesus is connecting, he's connecting Jonah and the resurrection. Like, that's not a normal connection. And can I tell you, when you look at Scripture and you try to spiritualize everything in the Old Testament to kind of make it fit perfectly, you know, like whatever, I would say, be careful, okay? Because you don't want to make the Scripture say something it doesn't say, but when the Scripture clearly connects it, you have the connection. And here's Jesus, out of all people, making the connection of literal people, literal Ninevites who are going to be rescued, who will stand in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Now, why? They would do this because they respond to the preaching of Jonah and I would ask you how much revelation again did the people of Nineveh have think about how short the message was and yet you have them responding to God and I would ask this question how much revelation do you have in our modern day now maybe you say well Jeremy um, I don't own a Bible (laughs) well that's your own fault (laughs) because if you want it it's there I mean You can download it. You got a smartphone, I'm guessing. You're probably a couple of clicks away from the gospel if you really want it. Right there. Look at Jonah, three days, three nights in the belly of the great fish. So will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, don't get caught up too much in this sense. Some people read that three days, three nights, three, th- three days and three nights. Okay, okay, if it's three days and three nights, and, and we're thinking in our American culture, twenty four hour, th- three days, three nights. Okay, so that means okay, Sunday morning. Okay, wait, wait. Okay, there's a day and a night. Whatever, 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 wait, wait, wait a second. Was it Friday? Maybe no. Maybe it's Thursday. No, maybe it's Wednesday. No, it's Friday. Thursday. It's Wednesday. Ah! You know, and all of a sudden there's a big fight that breaks out in the church. You know, you got to get all these people aside. You know, no, no, no. And I say that because there are really good people, gifted Bible scholars that do differ on some of this. Because the problem is their days and nights are different than ours. I mean, the way we, they even look at it. you got to remember, I mean, even from the beginning in Genesis, you're reading that, what is it? that? Uh, and, and then the evening and the morning were the first day. That's weird. We don't say that. We say the morning and the evening. You know, what are you talking about? Because what happens in the evening at, at, at sundown for the Jewish people, the culture, what is it? It's their next day. Like everything about that is shifting. And then within the culture, we say things like this too. We get it because we say this. You know, we were earlier, you know, in January, we were in, we were in Miami, okay? Talk about traveling. You know, we were in Miami uh, with, with church there. And, and then we're in Florida for a couple of weeks. We kind of started working our way, you know, north and west and whatever and come across eventually here. But as I say that, interesting, at one point in time on our day off, uh, we took a day trip. And we went to, like, one of the beaches there in in Miami, you know? Um, We saw the coast, you know? Have you ever seen that in in Phoenix? Anyway, and uh, (laughs) and we see this. But I I say that to say, if I were to say we took a day and went to Miami, that could mean a 24-hour period. That could mean, well, the afternoon in a couple of hours. It, It could mean just during daylight. You see what I'm saying? I say that because the way they would say a day and a night meant really any part of a day within the culture. So don't freak out with this. Try to measure everything perfectly. How does it all work? You know, um, I, think I, could, I think I could clearly point you to Friday. But the truth is, again, there's good people that differ. The whole point is this. You're going to see a sign, it's going to be so clear, it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The greatest sign in human history, the the greatest reality of Messiah being who he is as the resurrected Christ. This is why Jesus and not Muhammad. This is why Jesus and not Buddha. There's only one Messiah. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Jesus made a very strong claim. The scripture tells you this. There's one mediator between God and man. It's the one go-between. Between God and man, who is it? It's the man, Christ Jesus. Scripture tells you there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. It's Christ and Christ alone, the only Messiah. So what is he saying? Look at Jonah. Jonah points to Jesus and the resurrection. Not just look at Jonah, but learn from the Ninevites. What did they do? They repented, and, and, and that's the key there. They repented at the preaching of Jonah. Have you ever repented? You know, through the years, it, you know, it's interesting, Pastor. I've had, I've had people confront me and say, stop preaching repentance and i kind of it just makes me smile i don't i don't really it doesn't phase me i kind of say well uh, i kind of want to preach the same message jesus preached jesus said in mark 115 repent and believe the gospel i kind of want to preach the same message that the the apostles preached. That's, that would kind of be one I'd want to preach, you know? And we all know this, that God is not slack or slow concerning his promises, as some people would count slowness, but he's long-suffering. That means he's patient, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to what? Repentance. Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a whole change of direction in life. It's not a work that you do. God grants them the gift of Repentance. But when God is working in your heart and you begin to understand the gospel, what are you doing? You're saying, I don't want my sin. I'm turning from my sin, but not just turning from it. You're turning from sin to Messiah, who's the only one who can rescue you. If you're just saying, I don't want my sin because I don't want to go to hell, well, then then, then that's not genuine conversion or genuine faith. You're just saying, I want a fire escape. And I definitely don't want his judgment, but I don't really want Jesus. I've had even people tell me this. They say, well, listen, Jeremy, listen, I don't want to go to hell, but I'm not really ready to give Jesus my life. And so I tell them the truth, then you're not ready. You don't partially repent. It's a 180 turning completely to Messiah. I do believe this. I believe there are, I think our churches are filled with people who call themselves Christians who have never genuinely repented. That means there will be some in this very room, statistically, who would be lost. They make the claim, but so do cults. And Jesus said, many will say in that day, Lord, Lord, haven't we prophesied even your name? Haven't we even done good works, cast out demons in your name? But what's the dilemma with them? Depart from me, you who work iniquity. It's you who keep living in your sin habitually. You are supposedly doing all these works, but you live habitually in your sin, and what does he say to them? I don't know you. Jesus says, my sheep they hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And then what does he say? He goes on to say he gives them eternal life, and he places them in his hand, and no one shall pluck them out of my hand. That's John 10 there's a lot of people who call Jesus in a sense maybe even their lord i mean many will say lord lord that's a that's a verbally saying this but it's not from here because no one can actually say it from here unless God is at work of, upon and in them, where they say, I don't want my sin, I want Christ, and he is my Lord. And that is the key, isn't it? Because in the end, if we, we think of, we think of uh, Romans chapter 10 and verse 9. What does, it, what does that say? That if you would confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. What does that literally translate That you would confess with your mouth uh, that Jesus is Lord. That he is Messiah, but he's also Lord. And you'll submit to him that way. That's what you long to do as a, as a person repenting. It's not a like, oh, stink. I've got to follow Jesus with my life. Or maybe one day I will, you know, I'll believe in Jesus today, and, and then one day I'll, I'll, I'll maybe give him my life. It, it doesn't work that way. Um, so what is he calling you to do? Repent. Fully turn to him. Not just with the lip service, but with the heart. Rend your heart not your garments, Scripture would say. So we look at this, and we say, see, wait a second. So look at Jonah, learn from the Ninevites, and the last thing you want to see here is just really that last verse within this segment. It's verse verse, um, verse, verse 42. It says this, The queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. Now, wait a second. Who is the queen of the south? We know her in scripture as the queen of Sheba. So, seemingly living like in the heart of Africa, she's going to make her way a long journey in that day and age. Now, again, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, you know, well, Jeremy, I made a long journey today. You know, <laughs> and traveled, you know, across Phoenix maybe to get here. You know, and and it was kind of a long journey. You know, and, I, and so the truth is, is I mean, I had to adjust my seat. You know, and early on, it was kind of. It was kind of, you know, cold out in Phoenix, and so I kind of had to turn on the heat a little bit too. Adjusted my seat, kind of drove here, you know. And man, when I leave here today, I'm gonna have to turn on the AC on my way home. It's gonna be, I mean, but that's a long journey. (laughs) Not like hers, like literally months, and she could die in the process. But she goes on this massive journey because she hears that there's this, there's this king. And there's nobody like this king in all the earth, and I got to find out his wisdom. She even brings a bunch of stuff, which is kind of funny too, because she's going to bring give him all kinds of goods, you know. And he's going to be like, oh, I'm like thank you, that's very kind, you know. But here's some more to take home, you know. And she's like, whoa, overwhelmed. But it's like, and then she's what? Now I, I would ask this: What questions would you ask Solomon? especially if you're a ruler of your own nation, I think she's going to be asking nation-style questions, like how in the world do you enhance the commerce within the culture? How do we, how do we make our nation thrive better when it comes to food and our people and, and those kind of things? How do we help deal with poverty? I mean, you're, you're talking about genuine you know, rulership style of questions. I mean, look at all this, and and, and every time he answers her, she's just—you you can imagine, like with a pen and a paper. Now it's so not that we're just, you know, like, well, that's old oh, man. That's really good. You know, that's asking like a guy who started about a thousand businesses from scratch and saying, hey, could you kind of—I'm getting ready to start a business. Can you can you give me some tips here? Of course, you're, you know, like that's amazing. Okay, and at what point in the conversation does, does she say this? What is that structure, that amazing structure over there? Well, that's the temple. Let me tell you about the God we serve. Let me tell you about the sacrifices that we make daily. But one day, there will be a once for all perfect sacrifice. How in the world could she stand up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it if she did not become a believer? And how should, 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 could she be a believer if she hasn't heard the message? In the Old Testament, they weren't saved by their sacrifices, not the blood of bulls and goats that could never take away sins. Read Hebrews. But they were saved by looking forward to the Savior to come. He's going to come. So she's going to stand up in the judgment. And I think of her, she she goes to this long journey to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Like you you listen to all this and all of this is to me is like a wow, it's 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 like a a scathing rebuke to the believer as well because consider what he even says here within this because because in verse 42 notice at the very end and indeed a greater than Solomon is right here in front of you he's saying this to the people that means the greatest king of kings and lord of lords is Jesus and he's the one speaking the message guys you should listen to the message as he's saying this and then how much effort do you put forth in your spiritual life and physical life to pursue the greatest wisdom of God found in Jesus or in a practical way how much effort do you take personally to dig and pursue after the greatest wisdom of God right here because the normal excuses don't really work too well well I'm Kind of busy, really? don't you find time to do everything you really want to do? Could you imagine, man? it 's been three weeks I haven 't eaten a thing i'm so I'm so busy, I just forgot. Or could you imagine saying to your boss? <laughs> Hell, would, I would have been at work the last three days, but I've been so busy. <laughs> and what would your boss say? Well, don't worry. <laughs> you have more time on your hands because you're fired. You know what I mean? <laughs> you always make time to do everything you really want to do. Greater than Solomon is here. There's no greater king than King Jesus. Actually, the end of verse 39 speaks to this. No sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. As you go to the end of that, what, verse 41 And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. There's no greater prophet than the prophet that's right in front of them. Actually, you can even see verse 6 of that same chapter. Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. Because here's Jesus, who is the greatest sacrifice, the greatest priest, the greatest king, the greatest prophet. This is Messiah. Are we pursuing him? Yes, this began with a sinful request, and Jesus responds with a scathing rebuke. And I would just simply, in conclusion, say this it requires a serious response from the listener. What does that mean? If a sinner is going to truly come to Christ, then the sinner must reject the world's wisdom for God's wisdom. They must also then repent of their sins, turning to Christ and Christ alone. Amen. Last week in preaching, uh, we had some Indian friends show up from an area church. And um, many of them would confer that the Hindu culture would be add Jesus to your gods. When the when the missionaries begin to realize what's going on, they'd go visit the house, they'd see all these gods up there, and then they'd see a picture of Jesus. They're like, wait a second, this is now you forsake all of your gods for Jesus. Because all of us are false gods. There's only one true God, it's Christ. You repent of your sins by turning to Christ and Him alone. You look by faith to Jesus, that means you trust in Christ. When this happens, the sinner is made a saint. By God. That's amazing. I don't say I think I feel like a saint all the time. But positionally I am. God looks down from heaven and sees Christ in me. By his mercy and grace. But the self-righteous. The self-righteous. They reject God's wisdom. For the world's. I mean, come on, you believe that? <laughs> a, no, don't, 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 don't waste your time on, on that Bible stuff, you know, seriously. And instead of repenting of their sins, what do they do? They cover over their sins. They try harder, do better, make a New Year's resolution. None of that stuff takes away your sins, Instead of looking to Christ alone, they look to self. You could say this: this if this happens in the end when they die, if they die in that condition, you die, and guess it would be the self-righteous show themselves to be sinners, condemned eternally by God. So, how will you respond? Now, in conclusion, the two I would just simply say this: is many of you going to? I started off with the Titanic. Uh, how many of you know the name Erwin Lutzer? Anyone know the name Erwin Lutzer? Okay, Erwin Lutzer, kind of, a, kind of a famous writer in our day. He was a pastor too, a retired pastor now. Erwin uh, Lutzer, though, said this. He said, when I became pastor of the Moody Church in 1980, I knew that one of the church rooms was named Harper Hall in memory of the Scottish evangelist who was on a journey to the Moody Church, but he drowned when the Titanic sank in April of 1912. So here was a guy who was making his way there. He said, only recently, however, did I learn of the full story of this remarkable man. Harper's reputation as an evangelist was so well known that he was invited to speak at the Moody Church in 1910. He says, I have in my possession a photocopy of a letter in his own handwriting, which reads, I have been in Chicago for three months. God gave us a very precious and wonderful revival of continuous services each day and sometimes even more often. Three months of evangelistic meetings. Now, I'm, I'm not asking for that. Holy cow, that's amazing. And sometimes more than once a day. So he went on to say how he had been invited back to the Moody Church for another three months of meetings. That's why he's on the Titanic. And so it was that John Harper, his sister, and his six-year-old daughter, they found themselves on the great ship, the Titanic. Now, wait a second. Where's his wife? His wife actually had passed away. So he was with his sister. He had a six-year-old daughter, and it was him. And They're on the Titanic. Survivors later reported that as the Titanic began to sink, that Harper admonished people to be prepared to die. He, he made sure his sister and daughter were on a lifeboat, even as he continued to share the gospel with whoever would listen and then he found himself in the icy water with a life jacket near floating, floating near another man. He asked the man, "Are you saved?" And the man responds back. He says, "No, I am not saved." And he's desperately responding back, "No, I am not saved." And he says, "Well, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved." One report says Harper, knowing that he could not survive long in the icy water, he took off his life jacket, threw it to another person, with the words, "You need this more than I do." And moments later, Harper disappeared beneath the water. Let me remind you absent from the body is present with the Lord for those who are in Christ. It took four years before they had a reunion. Now you can imagine hey, we're going to get together all next year of all the survivors. That's not going to happen. It's going to take time, it's going to take time even emotionally. And now, all of a sudden, they're getting together as survivors. It was four years later at a reunion of the, with the survivors of the Titanic. The man to whom Harper had witnessed told the story of his rescue and he gave the testimony of his conversion. It's actually recorded in a gospel track. The track is called I Was John Harper's Last Convert. When I think of that, I think about here is this man, he's on his deathbed, he knows where he's going. Can I remind you, if you're in Christ, you know where you're going. So what should we be doing? We should be pursuing people. We should be calling people to repentance. Now, again, we can't save anybody. But let me remind you, within the same context, Jesus says this in Matthew eleven twenty eight: 28, Come to me. He's calling this to the whole crowd. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. It's like yoke up with me, given that kind of old picture of yoking together with oxen, you know, like that. And take my yoke upon me, for I am gentle and meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to me. You see the kindness of Jesus calling all people repent and believe the gospel. Have you responded? And if you have today, we can glory in who who Jesus is. But then I guess the next question for you is, as a believer, are you pursuing Jesus as the greatest prophet, priest, king, sacrifice? Are you going after him? May God help us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the kindness that you have shown us and the mercy of that you have shown us. God, I pray for my friends here today. I pray for all of our hearts to be humble and tender before you. God, if there's somebody who's here without you, I pray that there would be humility of heart. There would be genuine repentance and faith in Christ alone. With our heads bowed, our eyes closed, I like to always ask questions at the end of a service. It helps me know how to better pray for you. And So I wonder how many would say this, Jeremy, as you described a person who comes to Christ, a sinner who rejects the world's wisdom for God's. They embrace the scripture, the gospel in their own life. They repent of their sins. They turn from their sins to Christ and Christ alone. They look by faith to Christ. They trust in him. Let me remind you, the demons believe in Jesus and they tremble, but they're not going to heaven. It's not an intellectual belief in Jesus. You must understand who he is but it must sink down 18 inches into the heart. But when a person then repents and by faith looks to Christ and trusts in Christ alone, then you've been made a saint by God, according to Scripture. How many in the room would say this? Jeremy, by God's grace, I have experienced true conversion. I have repented of my sins. I have trusted in Christ and Christ alone, and he has saved me. And if I die today, I know I'd go to heaven to be with him because he has rescued me. If that's true of you, could you slip your hand up as a testimony? Jeremy, I really believe that's happened to me at some point in the past in my life. Okay, you can put your hands down. I appreciate that. Now, maybe you're here today. And again, I don't think anyone's, you know, if you're a believer, that's not anything you're ashamed of. But I appreciate the honesty because not everyone did raise their hand to that. Maybe you would say, Jeremy, that hasn't happened to me yet. It needs to happen to me. But at this point in time, maybe you'd even say, Jeremy, I think I'm kind of working on that or working towards that, but do you, would, you, would you pray for me? I won't point anyone out, but by an upraised hand just high enough that I would see, I would know to pray for you today. And you'd be saying, Jeremy, pray for me, because if I were to die today, I don't know that I'd go to heaven, or I know I wouldn't. And it concerns my heart. Would you just remember me in prayer? And you'd just slip your hand up high enough so I could see it. I'd remember to pray for you today. Jeremy, pray for me. Please pray for me. appreciate that. Appreciate that. Appreciate that. And can I remind you too, as some of you have raised your hand to this, that you don't have to wait. If God is working in your heart now, you can repent now. It's not a special prayer that you pray. When I think about that, I think of the criminal on the cross. He humbled his heart. He turned to Christ and to Christ alone. If you have never done that, then you can humble your heart today and say, Lord, I don't don't want my sin. I want you to rescue me. I am turning from my sin to you as my Messiah. And I want to trust in you. I want to give my heart, my life to you. I want you to birth me into your family. Scripture would call that being born again, being converted, trusting Christ as your Lord and Savior. You can cry out to him now. You don't have to wait. But I want to pray for you right now. Father, I want to pray for those that have raised their hand in this room, showing their need, concerned. And I pray, God, that right now, today, would be the greatest day of their life if they have never responded in genuine faith in you, that they would not wait. Lord, they could live to be 90, but they're not promised tomorrow. They're also not promised that when they're 90, they would have a humble heart to respond to repentance and faith in Christ. So God, as your word would teach us, your word tells us, behold, today is the day of salvation. That we don't push it off and you're working on our hearts, we respond to you. So God, if that's never happened, I pray that today that would happen. That you would give confirmation within the heart and soul through the scriptures. Or if there's questions that they would ask, they would begin to be humble. They would talk or they maybe, maybe even connect a time to talk to pastor or to somebody when it comes to their spiritual life or give humility and i wonder today as we are kind of closing thinking through this i prayed for you if you want to talk to somebody uh, i'm going to be in the lobby pastor will be around here too pastor's going to say some things in just a moment here too we would want to help you i tell people i will skip a meal any day for your salvation and yet scripture does say this These things are written that you may know that you have eternal life. So you don't have to wonder. You can know that for sure.